All right, and I will draw us back together. Good morning, Cascades Church. It's so good to be here, as always. I love getting to come and worship with you guys. I'm going to just begin by reading our text for this morning. It's found in Philippians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open there. I'll give you a second. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you all in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me just pray for us, then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you and we praise you that we believe as we gather and as we read your word, you are here with us and among us and in us. God, we believe that we don't just read these words on a page written 2,000 years ago as an artifact, but we believe that by your Holy Spirit, you, you vivify them, you bring them to life, you bring life out of these words for us today, and I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would do that work in us today. Fill me speak through me, and Holy Spirit, do the work of healing and transformation that our hearts so desperately need. We pray all this for your glory. Amen. So I have been here a few times. I've preached from Philippians a few times here. It's a personal favorite book. It's something we've been walking through at my church for a bit, so it's been fitting. And the book of Philippians, just to catch us up on some context that's really important as we get into it, the book of Philippians is a letter, like all of Paul's writings. And this particular letter is a very heartfelt, affectionate one. It's a letter in which Paul, an apostle of Jesus, is writing while he's in prison in the city of Rome, likely between 60 and 62 AD. And he's writing to a congregation in Philippi, that he had helped plant about 10 years earlier in this vibrant, multicultural city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony located in what was then known as Macedonia, now part of the nation of Greece. It was the first congregation established on European soil. It's an exciting church. But Paul's now far from Philippi, writing from prison where he finds himself for preaching the good news that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And in the Roman Empire, this made him an enemy of the state, so he's in prison. And one of the major themes that we see as Paul writes from prison that traces throughout this entire letter 
is the reality that while these people found their citizenship in Rome and citizenship to Rome was an incredibly elevated and prestigious and privileged status at the time, as followers of Jesus, the theme is and the idea is that we are citizens and our citizenship is incredibly elevated and privileged. But we're not citizens of Rome or of Canada or, God forbid, of the USA. I can make that joke. My wife's American. But we are citizens of a kingdom far greater, far more valuable, not even worth comparing to those others. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And as Paul writes this letter, we see a number of other themes emerge and flow throughout. Most significantly, the theme of joy. If you've read Philippians before, this traces all throughout the theme of joy, maybe even joy in the midst of adversity. Paul uses the word joy and rejoice 16 times in this short letter. This is the most joyful of all of his letters, and it speaks to the theme of contentment that we so long for in the human story. A bunch of Philippians also reads like a thank you note, if you've read this book before. And again, quick context, as Paul was in prison, this church in Philippi had built up resources and support and sent them with a guy named Epaphroditus to Paul to take care of him. So Paul's writing this letter and saying, thank you. You came through for me. You provided for my needs. You saved me from death. So that's another major theme in the letter of Philippians. But the fact is that these other themes, joy, gratitude, all of this, find their root or their source ultimately in the profound truth that we are not citizens of an earthly nation only, but we are citizens more significantly of a heavenly kingdom. That our citizenship in God's kingdom is the very reason that we can be and should be joyful amidst adversity. Joyful even when imprisoned far from home, like Paul is. That our, citizen, our citizenship in God's kingdom is won through the love and strength of Jesus, and he and he alone is the source of true contentment, this thing that we find so elusive in life. That our citizenship in God's kingdom is the very thing that binds us together with one another in love and commitment to care for one another, like, like Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi do during Paul's imprisonment. You can see each of these major themes finds its theological and practical root in the truth that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and that Jesus is our Lord, not Caesar, or the government of Canada, or your boss, or your bank account. We are citizens. And it seems that this theme is as central as it gets for Paul in this letter when we look at the way that he starts it all out in these first 11 verses of chapter 1. It's often said that the best way to get inside a writer's mind, especially a writer of, the le- of a letter, is to pay attention to his or her exhortations or his or her imperatives or commands. And so if we pay attention to Paul's commands or exhortations, we get to the motive for their writing. And so Paul's first exhortation, his first command in this letter that he wrote from a prison cell in Rome to his friends in Christ living in the first century city of Philippi reveals the drumbeat of his whole letter. The first imperative comes actually after our text today. It comes in verse 27 of chapter 1, 
where Paul writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that word gospel, the word Paul uses is euangelion. It's a Greek word, which comes to us in English as evangel and results in words that we may have heard before like evangelize or evangelical. Evangel means literally good news. Good news. And this word occurs in the New Testament 76 times. Of course, the New Testament is all about God's good news in Christ Jesus. So get this, of the 76 times that this word is used in the New Testament, 60 of them are in Paul's writings. Paul uses this word more than obviously any other biblical author, and he uses the word nine times here in the letter to Philippians. Paul is a man captured by the gospel, captured by the good news. He's under the spell of the gospel. Paul lives and breathes the gospel. His life is a life of, quote, participation in the gospel as he characterizes himself and the Philippians in the text that we read this morning. And so look at verses 3 to 5 of our text. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He lives and dies for the gospel. He's imprisoned for it. And his first major exhortation in this letter from Rome is only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of it. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Of Christ. And this is an important piece of the puzzle. Of Christ. The gospel of Christ. The gospel that is all about Jesus. Paul makes sure that we know which gospel he's talking about. For you see, Nero Caesar, before whom Paul is standing trial, Nero Caesar in his day has a gospel, has his good news, as did the Caesars who came before him and the Caesars who would come after him. All the Caesars have their euangelion, their evangel, their good news, that they're in their ascension to power and the throne, a new era has begun for the empire and for the world. Their good news then shapes life in their empire. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Jesus, Jesus the Christ has a euangelion, a, an evangel. He, as Savior and Lord, also has good news for the empire, good news for the world. Indeed, he is the good news. And his good news is that we are citizens. We are citizens of his kingdom. The word translated as conduct yourselves in verse 27 there is a very difficult Greek word to say, but it's something like politeiumai. Very difficult. But if you listen closely, the part that's easy is the beginning, and it's, it sounds like you can hear the word poly in it. Poly. It comes into English in words like political or politics. Poly means city or empire. Paul says only conduct yourselves Live as citizens of the polis. Live as faithful citizens of the empire. Now, the majority of the people in the city of Philippi were conducting themselves in a manner worthy 
of the gospel of Caesar. They were conducting themselves as citizens of the Roman Empire, shaped by the gospel of Caesar. Paul exhorts these disciples of Jesus, who in Philippi are citizens of Rome, a city that's shaped by the gospel of Caesar, to now live as citizens of the heavenly city, shaped by the gospel of Christ. This is transformational. Later in this letter, Paul will remind the Philippians and us that, quote, our citizenship is in heaven. This is in chapter 3, verse 20. He reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And this word citizenship is that same Greek word, of the polis. In relationship with Jesus Christ, the world's true Savior and Lord, our primary residence, our true residence, is in the heavenly polis, the heavenly empire. As citizens of Rome, Paul and his friends are also citizens of heaven. If you will, they carry two passports, a Roman and a heavenly. And the heavenly supersedes the Roman. The passport of the heavenly city upstages the passport of the earthly city. Living under the rule of Rome, they have also come under the rule of heaven. Living under the gospel of Caesar, they also live under the gospel of Christ. And this is the true gospel. This is their true citizenship. And it is ours as we live in Vancouver under the gospel of our age. My wife and I recently sent into Nova Scotia the application for the renewal of her permanent resident card in Canada. And it's just a reminder as an interesting analogy of this kind of dual citizenship that occurs. See, my wife, as a permanent resident of Canada, it means a lot of things for her. She's allowed to be here, full rights and expectations of being a contributing member of society, allowed to work here and called to work here and make money here and raise family here, receive health care here. But when it comes down to it, my wife is not a citizen of this land in the same way as she is a citizen of another country where her ultimate allegiances lie, which she will remind you of with regularity if you ask her. There's a country south of here that is home, a country of which she is a true citizen. Hence, they're called citizens. And it's an imperfect analogy, and frankly, like, I kind of feel like I need to take a shower for even equating the USA to the kingdom of heaven. But I think it's an imperfect analogy that can maybe be helpful as we think about living under the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ, the heavenly polis, the heavenly city, is our true home, where our true allegiances lie. And as we're called to live here and exist here and work here and be part of God's renewing work in our city here, we're reminded that our true home where our allegiances lie, a land that holds our priority and our passion and our pursuit, a kingdom where we are true citizens, is the kingdom of heaven. And we pray that God would break that kingdom in here in our time. And so that's the lay of the land. That's the lay of this theme throughout Philippians. And in this opening section of his letter, in the first 11 verses we just read, Paul begins by outlining with thanksgiving and with joy 
a fundamental guarantee that is made to all citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. A guarantee that's made to all citizens of this kingdom. And it's in verse 6. This is the heartbeat of our text today. Philippians 1.6. Paul writes, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, life in the empire, life in the Roman empire for the recipients of this letter, but shaped by the gospel of Christ, this way of living is grounded in a great confidence. It's grounded in a great confidence. Paul says, being confident, literally his words, being confident. Now, some translations of the scriptures, maybe ones that you have in front of you, have Paul starting a new sentence here. So that verse will often start in some different translations. For I am confident of this, as like a new sentence, as though it's a new thought. But Paul has actually not begun a new sentence here. He's continuing this sentence that he's already in. When he writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Being confident of this, same thought. So why thanking God with joy, even though he writes from prison? Well, for one thing, verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, but more pressingly, being confident of this very thing. Paul prays for his friends in Christ Jesus with thanksgiving and with joy because God has begun a good work in them and because God is going to bring that work to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So he prays for them with thanksgiving and with joy. We should burn this guarantee of heavenly citizenship into our souls, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's one of the things that causes Paul to have what we've talked about as one of the major themes of this letter, joy amidst adversity, because of this very guarantee. Because remember the circumstances that Paul's writing from. He's not writing from some secluded, restful retreat center located on a sandy beach on a beautiful island in Greece. Sounds amazing, not criticizing, that sounds lovely. If you want to send Alex and I to one of those, we'd happily go. But no, Paul's not writing from one of those places. Paul is in chains, imprisoned in Rome. He's waiting to make his defense of the gospel before Nero, one of the most corrupt and ruthless, ruthless leaders of all the Caesars. He's cut off from the churches that he loves, not able to go back and see them. And while in prison... He hears of troubles that are brewing in the church of Philippi. He hears of some internal strife in this church in Philippi, which troubles him. Also, persecution is, up, is rising around the church. And Paul sees what's happening from Rome, and he sees that what's happening in Rome is also beginning to happen in Philippi. It's a frightening time, and Paul feels distant and removed from it, helpless. 
Yet Paul tells his friends in Christ that he's praying for them with joy. Joy. Why? Why joy? In this whole letter digs deeply into a number of Paul's implied and stated reasons for the joy that he has amidst trial. But the first one is important enough that we never forget it. Joy, why? Well, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul's not ignoring the difficult realities that he is facing and that they are facing. He's not pretending that all in the world is rosy and they have nothing to worry about or fight for on the horizon. They do, and he knows it. He's simply taking his stand on the gospel. He's taking his stand on the gospel that God has begun a good work. God has begun a good work here in the church in Philippi. God has begun a good work here in each of their lives. God has started a good work, and God always finishes what he starts. Or put another way, God only starts what he intends to finish. Maybe I'll just pause right there for a second and just let that be good news for you all on its own today. Just think about that for a second. And think about the work that God has begun and done in your life in the past even take a little walk down memory lane. Take a second. Think of the work that God has begun and done in your life down through the years to bring you to this place today. And reflect on the fact that the gospel promise here is that God will carry that work forward. And that work in you will reach beautiful, perfect completion on the day of Christ Jesus because God always finishes what he starts. That's really good news for me today. I trust that that's really good news for you today. What a hopeful reflection. Paul knew that the good work that God had started miraculously in his life would not be thwarted by difficult circumstances. Difficult as Paul's circumstances might have been, being in prison far from his loved ones, Paul knew but the good work that God had begun in his life would not be thwarted by them. Likewise, he also knew that the good work that God had begun in the church in Philippi would not be thwarted even by the troubling reports that Paul might have been receiving. Internal conflict in the church, external persecution on the doorstep, none of it could stop God completing the good work that he had begun. That is a gospel promise. Let it burn its way into our hearts and minds and souls this morning. Be confident of this, Cascades Church, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is what our citizenship guarantees. And it is that gospel guarantee which enabled Paul to pray for his friends in Christ with gratitude, thanksgiving, and joy. And it's why he then goes on to pray what he does in his prayer that follows in verses 9 to 11. Paul's giving a picture of God's good work. That good work that he just talked about, that God will carry on to completion, Paul gives a little picture of this good work. 
He's given this beautiful assurance that God will not let the good work begin and then go unfinished. And then in his prayer for them in verses 9 to 11, he provides a small window into what this good work really is all about. So look at verse 9. He says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So the good work, God is working to cause our love to, quote, abound, to abound. You know how sometimes, maybe this, maybe this is a relatable experience for you, it certainly is for me. You know sometimes you're trying to say or explain something and there's just, there's just no word that quite does it? Like you're trying to say something or express something, but it just feels like there's no word in the English language or no word that is coming to your mind that quite conveys the passion or emotion that you're getting at. I feel like I do this all the time. Well, Paul seems to get that and understand that. And it seems like part of Paul's solution at times was to, was to make a word up. See, the word that Paul uses here, he seems to have made up. Or at least, he's the only one who uses it in the whole New Testament. And the word he uses here means to abound or overflow, to be extremely rich in, to be more than enough. It's a beautiful word picture. As one New Testament scholar puts it, perhaps no other word so characterized for Paul, the new age opened up by Christ, as did this word. This word about abounding, overflowing, being overly rich, extremely rich, having more than enough. The new age in Christ is an extravagant age. Jesus gives incredible pictures of these, especially in his parables. Paul's word leads to the image of running over, of wave upon wave. In particular, in the new age in Christ, God's love abounds overflows, wave upon wave. And Paul prays in verse 9 that we would get so caught up in that abounding love of Christ that we would love in that same way. That we would get so caught up in that abounding, overflowing love that it would overflow out of us. He prays that we be so abounding in abounding love that we have, quote, no room to store it as one scholar put it. Immeasurably more, love that always has immeasurably more to give. This is Paul's prayer for the church, that they be people who love like that. May we be a church that is so caught up in the love of our Savior that we overflow with love like that. Which is why Paul can say what he says about his love for the Philippians in verse 8. He says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's that same abounding love. You may have as well, I've encountered a few King James Version only people in my lifetime, people who have decided that the only inspired version of the Bible is the translation into English from 1611 known as the King James Bible. And one of the only times that I've ever really wanted to agree with them is in how this verse is presented in the King James Version. The King James Version translates this verse as, 
I long for all of you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. I long for all of you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. Maybe no other time in my life have I been led to think specifically about the bowels of Christ Jesus. Perhaps that's true for you as well. But seriously, quite genuinely, this is the literal meaning of the word that Paul uses. It's translated literally here. We meet this word many times in the New Testament. It's this Greek word, splekna, and it means literally guts, this like deep place internally. It's referring to the place where we, where we feel our deepest emotions, a deeper place even than the heart. Our modern context, we just kind of use the heart for all this kind of language. The heart is the center for all emotions, all feelings. But this, is, this describes an even deeper place than we have categories to describe, a deeper place in the liver, a, the deepest place in the human being, the guts. And he says, I long for you with the guts of Christ Jesus. And it traces through, I'm borrowing a bunch of this next part from Daryl Johnson, but it's so good and it's so profound that I have to share it. But it traces through. Matthew tells us that Jesus saw a large crowd downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And in Matthew 9, it says he felt compassion for them. It's that same Greek word, splagna. He was moved in his guts. Matthew tells us on another occasion that another crowd gathered around Jesus. They had traveled a long distance to find him, and they were hungry. And Jesus sees the crowd, and Matthew says he felt compassion for them. This is in chapter 14. Same Greek word, splagna. He was moved in his guts. Jesus was moved at the deepest recesses of his being. In the Advent Christmas story, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, sings his song about the good news that he's received. He sings about the events of Christmas, referring to them as God visiting the earth, as God visiting humanity. And then he sings about the driving force of this visiting, of this visitation. And he says, because of the tender mercy of our God. The tender mercy of our God. Splagna is the word, same Greek word. God comes to us in Jesus because God is moved in his guts, because human need pulls him at the deepest recesses of his person, at his bowels, you could even say. I long for all of you with the splagna of Christ, Paul tells the Philippian church. I long for you at the deepest places of my, of my personhood. I long for you the way that Christ Jesus longs for you. I long for you with the gut-wrenching love of Jesus himself. It feels like a lot to muster up, doesn't it? But of course Paul says this. Of course Paul feels this because Paul is in Christ, as he says over and over and over again. Paul is in Christ, and being in Christ means being in all that is in Christ. When we live in Christ, we begin to live what Christ lives, especially his love. Paul loves the Philippians with Christ's love because Paul is living in Christ's love for the Philippians. And he prays that the Philippians and that we may abound in that love, abound in Christ's love for one another and for his church still more and more and more. That we would abound in that gut-wrenching, deepest places of the person love for one another and for the church still more and more. 
That is the good work that God is working in us as citizens of the gospel. And Paul clarifies. He says, a love with real knowledge and all discernment. A love with real knowledge and all discernment. A love that thinks as deeply as it feels. A love that is as wise as it is extravagant. Oh, dear God, work such love in me. And praise God that he only begins what he intends to perfect. Then verses 10 and 11, he writes this. So that, coming off the heels of this, this prayer for this abounding love, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. Righteousness. Righteousness means right relationship. God is at work righting all relationships. We can count on this in any circumstance. God is at work righting all strained and broken relationships. We ourselves might not be doing that. We might not be working toward that. We might not be giving ourselves to any of that work. We might be afraid or resistant or angry or weary, but not God. God is going for it. God is writing all relationships. God is writing our relationship with himself. God is writing our relationship with others. God is writing our relationship with ourself. And God is writing our relationship with creation. And in the process... He's making us into people with a passion in our guts for right relationship. A people with a passion for peace, with a passion for justice. And praise God that he only begins what he intends to perfect. Verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. Paul finishes it off. He finishes it off in this way. God is making us into people who live and who love for the glory of God. A people who seek to glorify God in all that we do. A people filled with God's glory, who radiate God's glorious character to our world. A people who long for him and who long for one another and who long for peace and justice in our world and in our city with all that we are right down to our guts, to the deepest places of our person. Why? To the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. And in this, Paul is essentially saying that in the perfection of everything that has come before in this teaching, the outcome that matters is the glory and praise of God. The outcome that matters is the glory and praise of God. It's not just that we be people of love for the sake of it. The outcome that matters is the glory and praise of God. In our love that abounds, that overflows, that is more than enough, that is lavish and extravagant and smart, in our longing for one another and for God with that love that abounds, God is glorified and God is praised. And that is the good work. That is the good work that God's begun in us. In our right relationships and our right relatedness with God, with one another, with ourselves, with creation, God is glorified and God is praised. And that is the good work that we are to be about. God is making us into people who live and who love 
for the glory of God. God is making us into a church who lives and who loves for the glory, not of ourselves or for our name, but of God and for his name. And praise God that he only begins what he intends to perfect. I just want to close by praying for us and praying a specific and intentional prayer for our love and our loves and our relationships to be righted, to be perfected as God promises. That we would be people, that we would be a church that sees God writing and perfecting us, bringing us toward completed, perfected work, toward what this pure and blameless presentation looks like at the day of Christ Jesus, that we would be a people and a church more and more like this each and every day, that we would abound in love. So let me pray for us, and then we'll move into communion together. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we just begin by thanking you and praising you for the promise that you will complete the good work, that you will bring the good work to perfection and completion at the day that you return to take us to be with you in eternity. Thank you that you only begin what you intend to perfect. And God, that means our church. That means me. That means each person in this room in whom you've begun this good work. God, I pray for each of us, and it's different for each of us. I pray for each of us in this room, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would show us, give us a glimpse, give us a word, for where in our lives this perfecting, abounding work is in store for us. Where you want to see us submit to your good work in us, Lord. What relationship or relationships you want to bring to righteousness, to right relatedness for your glory. Would you give us a picture, a word for what it looks like to be people, to be a person that you are perfecting in whom the work you've begun is being brought toward completion? God, do that in us. And Lord, do that in our church. May you show us what wisdom and abounding love looks like in our midst. May we love one another and love you with a love that abounds, overflows, is rich and abundant. And God, may you bring us to perfect love for you, for one another, for ourselves, for this world you've created. All for your glory, Lord. All for your glory, for your name, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we move to communion...